Sometimes we forget that we live in a world that's very different than the first century. Not only did they live differently than we do, but they also thought differently than we do. This means that they structured their world politically, religiously, economically, etc. as a Roman household, what historians would call a patron-client relationship. So even when Jesus is talking about love, we can't ignore this dynamic. Fortunately for us, the Godfather movies can help us translate. The bottom line, to love, do good, and to lend, even to your enemies, hits at the heart of the social world of the first century. You're listening to The Way with Father Dustin Lyon, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. So a few weeks ago, we talked about Father Paul Tarazi's idea of shepherdism, the idea either that we need to be like the shepherd, completely dependent on God when we're in the Syrian wilderness, or we are like the sheep, and God is the shepherd, and he takes care of us. He's not like the kings who make the people slaves, but rather he cares for us and looks after us. He goes after the lost sheep. And I don't think it's lost on anyone that this idea of shepherdism is not restricted to the Old Testament. It also flows into the New Testament. Although here, what's really interesting is that same idea of shepherdism, and you can also think of the Arab sheik, right, Uh, with the father at the top, and all the sons and the servants and the slaves underneath him, acting as a shepherd, you know, in his tent in the Syrian desert. But now you have to take that entire idea and apply it to the Roman Empire. And here, ultimately, within the Roman Empire, you have Caesar at the top as the Arab sheik, as the the shepherd, if you will, and then his household is the entire empire. And what's fascinating about the New Testament, and one of the, I think, one of the twists of the New Testament is it takes this idea of this Roman household and it flips it so that it undermines Caesar himself by saying, yes, we still have the structure of a Roman household, but Caesar's not on top. Instead, it's God. And that's the twist of the whole idea. That's how the New Testament usurps Caesar or undermines him in this sense. But we're not always familiar with how this works out in the New Testament, because this is not how our American culture works. Uh, We don't live in the same way. So when it comes up in Scripture, when it pops up in Scripture, we don't always recognize what's being played out. And this is the case this past Sunday in this Gospel reading that we read. This comes from Luke, and here in this passage we're reading about the Sermon on the Plain. This is equivalent to Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, except Luke calls it a plain. And it's the same idea. Jesus comes down from a mountain, and you've got kind of like this Moses image of Jesus giving the law or the Ten Commandments to the people, although in this case it's the new law uh, of the New Testament. And both of them start with Beatitudes, although Matthew moves the woes to the end of the book, where Luke goes from the Beatitudes to the woes right away. And then, of course, he has the teaching. And the teachings, the content between Matthew and Luke is slightly different, but uh, it's the same idea. 
I think if you were to sum up the entire Sermon on the Mount or Sermon on the Plain into one idea, it would be the love of neighbor, love of God, love of neighbor, or the golden rule, as we sometimes say. And this is, I think, what we hear when we read this past Sunday's lesson, is just this idea of be a good person. But what we don't hear is how Jesus completely undermines the entire living system, the economy of the people of the time, and causes them to think completely differently about how to live life and how to do business even. Because what he's actually talking about is this Roman household. So let me read you the passage. And then after that, uh, I'll give a modern day example of how the Roman household works. And I'm going to use the movie The Godfather. Because I think a lot of people have seen The Godfather. It's a very popular movie. And I'll give enough background information that if you haven't seen it, you'll be able to catch up and understand what's going on. But it'll give us a good idea of how the Roman household operated. Then I'm going to revisit the passage. I'm going to talk about the vocabulary that Jesus uses in the passage to show you how it undermines the Roman system or how it reorients the entire way people are living, their entire economy, occupation, those sorts of things. And then you guys can make your own decisions about how to interpret that in your own modern day lives, what sort of implications that has. So without further ado, here is the passage that we read from last Sunday. And this is David Bentley Hart's translation. So this is Luke 6, starting with verse 31. And just as you wish men should do to you, do likewise to them. And if you love those who love you, what is your thanks? And a side note, some translations have credit. What is your credit? Or what credit is that to you? But he translates it as thanks. For even sinners love those who love them. And even if you do good to those who do good to you, what is your thanks? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what thanks? Have you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order that they may receive an equal return. But love your enemies and do good and lend without despairing of it. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Become compassionate, just as your Father is compassionate. And there I ended on verse 36. So as I said, when we as moderns hear this passage, uh, we don't think in terms of the Roman household, and we don't think in terms of business or economy. But the words that Jesus used has that implication. I'll talk about what those words are and, and the different meanings between how we understand it and how those words should be understood within a first century Roman Judean context. But first, what does a Roman household really look like? How does that work? Well, I want to take you back, if you've seen the movie The Godfather, this is the first Godfather, although the theme goes throughout the entire movie or all three of the movies. So in the very opening scenes of The Godfather, it opens up on the day of The Godfather's daughter's wedding. And so there's a, I think he's Sicilian, if I remember correctly. So there's a Sicilian tradition that the Godfather cannot refuse the request of anyone on his daughter's wedding day. And so he's essentially holding court, if you will. He's at his desk and people are coming to make their requests and he's deciding how to handle these requests. And the very opening scene, it starts with a gentleman who's sitting across the desk from the Godfather and he's talking about his own daughter. 
And so this man tells the godfather that his daughter had been abused by these two men. They had taken her out, they had tried to rape her, and she had fought back. And these two men ended up basically beating her up, breaking her jaw, and, and he goes into detail about you know how horrible uh, this was. And he says, he tells the godfather, he says, I tried to do it the American way. Because obviously they're Italian immigrants, and they have their own systems, their own customs. And he says, I tried to do it the American way. And I called the police. And the police came, they saw my daughter, they took the notes, then they went and got the men and they put them in jail and took them to court. And he says, at the court, what happened is that the courts found him guilty, sentenced them, but essentially commuted the sentence. So they got off. In other words, what these men got basically was just a slap on the hand. And this father was very upset with this. So he's now come to the godfather to ask for justice. And here's where he makes his first mistake. He comes to the godfather and he says, tell me what you want. How much do you want? I'll pay you anything um, if you will do justice for my daughter. And the godfather says, well, what do you want me to do to them? And obviously he whispers to the godfather, but we get the idea. He wants the godfather to kill these two men, and he considers that justice. And that's probably the second mistake that he makes in talking to the godfather. So the first mistake is come... Well, actually, I guess there's three mistakes now. The first mistake is that he first went to the American courts instead of coming to the godfather first. The second mistake is that he thinks that the godfather is a sort of hired hand. He can pay him whatever he asks for and in return get justice, so to speak, for his daughter. And this third mistake is asking for their death and understanding that as justice. And these are mistakes because the godfather says, look, my wife is your daughter's godmother, and not once have you asked for my friendship or even asked me over for a cup of coffee. He says, I want your friendship. I don't want to be a thug for you. That's essentially what he's saying. He goes, I, I want your, your friendship. And so then the godfather continues and he says, when you come to me and you offer me money to do this thing for your daughter, this is, you're insulting me. There's no respect here. In other words, the man has disrespected the godfather in seeing him this way. Of course, the man just says, I'll pay you anything. I'll pay you anything. And of course, the godfather is very offended by this because this is not how the, this, Italian culture works. And so eventually what happens is the man, the father gets up and he goes to the godfather and he says, won't you be my friend? And he kisses his hand and calls him godfather. But what happens is now the godfather will do some sort of justice. Uh, suppose we will probably just rough up these boys. But now the man, this father, is in the godfather's debt. The godfather may come and ask him for a favor at some point in the future. And he says that. He goes, the day may come that I ask for a favor. Maybe it won't, maybe it will. But be prepared. And then the scene ends and the rest of the movie goes on. But this sort of hierarchy that you see that the Godfather is kind of this protector. Uh, the other way to think about this is a patron-client relationship. And this is how the Roman world worked. This is what the Roman household meant. This is the patron-client relationship. So the godfather was acting as this patron. He had this power where he could do certain things, or he could do favors for people that were below him in status. And those people below him in status could ask for these favors. But when they did that, they were in debt to the godfather for something in return. 
And this is how the Roman household worked. What would happen is that you would have these very powerful people called patrons who would have clients that were made up of their sons or their son-in-laws or their servants or their slaves or even the freedmen who depended on them. What's interesting is that even the living arrangements reflected this patron-client relationship. So if you go into any Roman city... Um, in the first, second century, the neighborhoods were structured around this patron-client relationship. So the main villa would have been the patron, but he would have had houses that he rented out, or the houses in the neighborhood would have been his clients, people who depended on him for their living. And of course, ultimately in the Roman society, the Caesar, whether it was Augustus or Tiberius or Nero or Caligula, whoever it was at the time, he would have been the top patron for the entire empire. And of course, all the senators and everyone underneath him would have been clients, so to speak. But it also was at every level of society. And so in the mornings, what would happen is the patron would hold office, so to speak, and his clients would come and they'd request their favors for the day just like the opening scene in The Godfather. And then the patron would then go to the Roman Forum. This is the marketplace. And his clients would go with him. And they would gather and do business, you know, city business and, and economics and, you know, these sorts of things in, in the Roman Forum. And the patron with the most clients had the most influence. He was the most powerful person in the room, so to speak. And so it was important that after the clients came to him in this morning meeting, that they would go with him into the forum and kind of sing his praises. Now, what's interesting is the words that were used for these sorts of things. So the favors that the patron bestowed on the clients in Greek is called charis. This is the word for grace. What the client had in return towards the patron was called pistis, or faith, or trust. So the patron had grace on his clients, and the clients had faith, or trust, in the patron. This is how it worked. And, and so ultimately what we see in Scripture, or the way that Jesus talks, or even the way that Paul talks in his letters, reflects this patron-client relationship, this idea of the Roman household. And oftentimes what they're doing is they're structuring their stories or their teachings or their parables or, or whatever it is that they're talking about within this sort of worldview. And so we have to understand it in this way. So here in this, in this passage here, when it says, uh, if you love those who love you, what is your thanks? Or what credit is that to you? depending on which translation it is. And then it says the same thing. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that? Um, or if you lend to those who, who, from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that? In Greek, this is the charis. This is the grace. This is what it's talking about. So think about it this way. If you only do business with those who can re repay the debt, so to speak, just remember the godfather. The godfather expected that father to someday pay back his debt to him, what credit is that to you? He's talking about this economic relationship. Uh, so in other words, if you only do good things to those who can do return to you, then you get your credit. You get your grace, your thanks. The debt is repaid. And what Christ is insisting is that you should do business in such a way that you always lose. You do business in such a way that you are benefiting other people and have no expectation that they can return the favor. That's what it's saying. Because remember, when patrons 
did things for their clients. They expected that loyalty, whether it was them singing their praises or spreading good gossip or paying them back some somehow through rent or money or crops or whatever it is. Jesus is saying, don't do business that way. You can't do business that way. It doesn't make any sense. In the kingdom, you do things for other people because that's what God calls you to do. That's what your patron, the true patron, calls you to do. So that's one word described, that credit, that thanks, charis. The other word that we misunderstand is the word for love, agape, which is the word that's used here in the Greek text. Now, we think of love in a psychological sort of sense, like an inner feeling, how I feel about you. But you have to remember, in the first century, both the Romans and the Judeans, uh, the Galileans, all these sorts of people, they are not individual-minded like we are here in America. They don't have this idea of psychology like we do. And so, love is not really a feeling. You don't, you don't have love in a feeling. What love actually means in the first century is attachment. And you have to think in terms of kinship or group mentality, because this is the sort of thinking that they had. You're either a part of a group or you're not. And so if you love someone, it means you're attached to them, you're loyal to them, you're a part of their in-group. And if you hate someone, that means you're disattached from them, or you're a part of the out-group. That's what that means. It's always, you have to think in terms of the group. You can't think in terms of individuality here. So he's saying, if you love those who love you, in other words, if you only do business with those who are part of your group, what good is that? You need to love those who hate you. You need to love those who are not a part of your group, those outsiders. And here this gets us to the other vocabulary word, sinners. For even sinners love those who love them. And we often think of sinners in this context as someone who has done bad. I, I've sinned and now I have to go to confession. But sinners was a common vocabulary word just to talk about Gentiles, outsiders. So, in other words, he's saying, if you only love those who love you, or if you only do good to those who are a part of your in-group, what credit, what benefit is that to you? Because even the Gentiles, even the Romans do business that way is what Jesus is talking about. And he's saying, you need to learn to do business, not just within your in-group, but break out of that. It's the idea of being a light to the nations, of going out and preaching to the entire world, to all the nations, all the Gentiles. If we think of this vocabulary in terms of this patron-client relationship, in terms of the Roman household, then these other words make sense. The idea of doing good, or the idea of lending. And so that was the other aspect of the client-patron relationship, is that the patron often acted like a bank to his clients, that if the clients needed money, they could come to him for a loan. That's sort of how banking worked. Or if you needed a reference, or if you needed to get in contact with someone else to do business with, say you were you had a lot of wood and you wanted to sell you wood so people could build ships, for example, but you didn't have that relationship. You would go to your patron, because he was on a different social level than you, he could go and make that arrangement work so that you could have someone to sell your wood to and they could build their boats. So that's, that's also a part of this, this patron-client relationship. So here where it's talking about lending, that falls right into this idea of this Roman household. So these words, love, do good, and lending, all actually all go together. Because to us, it seems like random words, because we think of love in the psychological sense, we think of doing good as an action, and lending, 
how does lending fit in? Isn't that doing good? Uh, we think of lending as a, kind of a banking term. Uh, you know, you go to a bank for a loan or you lend something to somebody, maybe money to people for some reason. And so if you try to put these together, the key connection, the crimson thread that runs through them all is the idea of this Roman household, the idea of the client-patron relationship. And that's what Jesus is talking about. So the implications for us is that we have to view this much more differently than simply going around and doing good or, or kind of thinking good thoughts about people, because that's not what Jesus is talking about. So when, when Jesus is talking about loving your enemies and doing good and lending without despairing of it, he's not just talking about how we feel. And he's not just talking about being a good person. He's actually striking at the very heart of how commerce and the economy worked in the ancient world. He's completely expanding their borders and breaking them out of this tribe mentality. And in some ways, he's actually challenging their livelihoods because it's safe to play within the rules of this client-patron relationship. That's how business is done. It's safe to do it that way. But now Jesus is forcing them outside their comfort zone. But the other thing that Jesus is doing in this passage is that he's reorienting how they think about this patron-client relationship, how they think about the Roman household. Instead of depending on man, instead of depending on the Roman Empire and its system, he's usurping it and replacing it with God. God now becomes the patron and we are the clients. And because God is our patron, we no longer have to worry about the way that this normally works. We no longer have to worry about doing business in such a way that someone is in our debt or we're in someone else's debt, that grace, favor, credit sort of idea. We can now be people of God and do good things. We can love them, see them as a part of our in-group, or lend to them and not worry about getting something in return, because the true patron, God, will look after us. And we no longer have to be concerned about the business of the world, so to speak. So that's what Jesus is teaching in this passage, is much more than simple psychological feelings or just being a good person. But it's about challenging how we live our lives. Who's in charge, Caesar or God? So the challenge for us today is to figure out how to apply this sort of teaching in our lives today. We no longer have client-patron relationships. We have bosses and employees. We have banks and credit scores. But we have to remember, we always have to live our lives in such a way that we are giving people, that we share with others, we love them, we lend to them, we do good to them, and expect nothing in return. And we shouldn't worry about whether we need them to pay their debt back so that we can survive, because ultimately, God's our patron and will care for us. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to The Way, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. Mm-hmm.